Hi everybody, how are you? Hope this finds you safe and well as we edge our way closer to be returning to cinemas on the, is it the 17th of May? Oh, can't wait. Um, listen, just a, a quick personal note to say a massive thank you to everybody that sent me a lovely message off the back of last week's BAFTAs. Um, I had an absolute ball hosting the award show with Dermot O'Leary, um, who is such a wonderful and fun and generous co-host. So massive thanks to Dermot and massive thanks to everybody who worked tirelessly against all these unbelievable restrictions with regards to getting that show on air. So huge congratulations and thanks to everybody involved, both behind the scenes and all the nominees, all our citation readers, all the winners, all our brilliant musical performances as well. Thank you so much to everybody for all your work. But on to this week's show. And the great thing that we've been doing over the last couple of weeks is a lot of our guests have been um, part of this whole, you know, awards campaign, a lot of nominated films and artists talking about their films. And this week is no different because we have two guests for you from a couple of different nominated films. Now, we've cheated a little bit. I have to admit there was one of our guests doesn't really talk about music at all. But given that her film Nomadland has just won a, well, a sack full of BAFTAs and is nominated for six Oscars too, we thought we'd cut Chloe Zhao some slack. And to be honest, I loved getting the chance to chat to her and I loved Nomadland. So I just wanted to share the interview with you because I can and I will. So I hope you don't mind. And we're also joined by the wonderful Kevin MacDonald to discuss his new film, The Mauritanian, starring Jodie Foster, Tahara Min, Benedict Cumberbatch. The Mauritanian is based on the 2015 memoir Guantanamo Dari by Mohamedou Old Salahi who was held for 14 years without charge in the Guantanamo Bay detention camp. It is an extraordinary film. But plenty more on that shortly. But first, exciting news about how you can experience Jeff Wayne's The War of the Worlds in a way you never imagined. Now, as I've already said, I'm sure like me, you're pining for the day when we can congregate with friends and watch live music, go to the theatre or the cinema... And top of my list is Jeff Wayne's The War of the Worlds, the immersive experience, a brand new award-winning event that combines live action, virtual reality and breathtaking 5D effects to transport you right to the heart of the action. Now, I grew up with The War of the Worlds, so having the opportunity to hear Jeff's work whilst witnessing what it would be like to encounter a 300-foot Martian fighting machine sounds like the perfect night out for me and the family. True story. My father-in-law proudly displays his vinyl copy of Jeff's multi-platinum musical store in the living room. <laughs> so I'm very excited to get the chance to take him and my son Rudy along to see it. Now I know everyone is slightly nervous about returning to live events, but the experience is in a COVID secure venue, all 22,000 square foot of it. And every ticket comes with a COVID booking guarantee, so you can book up to six tickets with complete confidence. To find out more and to book tickets now for Jeff Wayne's The War of the Worlds, the immersive experience, head to thewaroftheworldsimmersive.com. That's thewaroftheworldsimmersive.com. And you can save up to £10 using the code SOUND at checkout. And so to our first guest, Kevin McDonald, who returns to Soundtracking and who asked relative newcomer Tom Hodge to take on the tricky task of scoring the Mauritanian. And we'll begin with his cue, Mohamedou's theme.
listen, Kim, thank you so much for taking the time to, to come in and chat to us. Um, it's so great to have you back on the podcast as well to talk about um, this incredible film. And, and I'll just jump straight in, if you don't mind, about the Mauritanian. But what was the, what was the attraction to the story? I was introduced to it really by Benedict Cumberbatch and his company. Benedict had optioned the rights along with another producer called Lloyd Levin. Um, and they sent it to me and I read it and thought, oh, I don't know if there's really a, a film I want to make in here. It's a remarkable book. It's this book written inside Guantanamo while Muhammad Al-Slahi was still there. It was published, redacted, so censored. You know, it's an incredible object. You see whole pages that are just blacked out. But I thought, I don't know, you know, how is this a, how is this a film? I couldn't see the film. And then they said to me, look, just speak to, speak to Mohamedou. So I got on Skype with him and we chatted for a couple of hours and I came off that convinced I have to make a film about this man. And that's really what drove me was him and what an incredible person. He's one of the, one of the most remarkable people I've ever met, if not the most remarkable person I've ever met in my life. And he has such warmth and humor and he's had such a, a rich life, even beyond his experience in Guantanamo and, and what happened to him there. And he's come out of it with the ability to not just forgive the people who did what they did to him, but also to actually be interested in them, to empathize with them, to want to know why did this happen in America? What were these people thinking? He's, a, you know, he's got a curious and amazing mind like that. So that was what made me want to do it. I just thought, this man deserves to have a movie, a movie about him, and 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 he's lovely too. Did you talk about music with him? Yeah, we did talk about music. He 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 he. You know, one of the strange things about him is that he loves American culture, and you would think that the opposite. You'd think, you know, how would this man, after everything that's happened to him, want to have anything to do with American culture? But even before he was in Guantanamo, he would tell me about watching Law and Order and things, Ally McBeal, these sort of wow. really fairly trashy American shows. But then in Guantanamo, after he had sort of, you know, been there for a while and after he had been forced to confess, he was given privileges. And one of the privileges was he was allowed a DVD player. He started watching movies and he would listen also to the music, CDs, what the guards were playing and they would play. And so he can sing, you know, every Loretta Lynn song you've ever heard. You know, the kind of people, the kind of people who, 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 who were guards there, they're sort of often Southern young guys not yeah. particularly well-educated. They listened to country music. They watched kind of fairly trashy Hollywood movies and they would give, feed him all this stuff. And he learned his English from them as well. So he's got the most incredible vocabulary, the most rich and salty vocabulary he's got going. It's a sort of soldier's vocabulary. So yeah, so he, yeah, he loves music. He loves music. And, and that's why at the end of the movie, the last thing you see is the real Mohammedan. and he's singing Bob Dylan, The Man and Me. And it's, 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 it's beautiful. He's singing it along with Bob. And I thought, I thought when I filmed that, which I just filmed on my phone when I was visiting, and that, I thought, oh wow! I wonder if I can get, wonder if I can get Dylan to agree. It's expensive stuff, Dylan, Dylan music, and, and we got in touch, and we told him the story. We told him that Muhammad, well, this was the end of the film. This is Muhammadu's favorite song. And it's his favorite song because it's in the Big Lebowski, by the way, because he loves. It. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I that. So, so he, so he, 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 he uh, and amazingly, Dylan's management came back and said yes, and they did it for us for a great deal. So it's in the movie and it's the perfect play. You know, it's, it, it's, it's one of those pieces of serendipity. It sums up the feelings of, of the film and of this man who has, whose life has been saved in a way by these two women lawyers. They've sort of recognized the humanity in him and they've, and they've fought and fought tooth and nail to get him out of Guantanamo. So that bond, you know, is always going to be for him incredibly important. Storm clouds are raging all around my 
to myself I might not take it anymore Take a woman like your kind To find That's really interesting, isn't it? That a song that he he resonated with or remembers from his time incarcerated has had this full circle, and 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 not really knowing at the time when when I guess the song, you know, kind of when it was when he was having a connection with it, that it would it would tell his story in a way as well. That's an incredible journey for. A- it is incredible, isn't it? It's funny, isn't it? How these things that you know the the luck of that in a way that I was there, that I was filming him because I wanted, he was talking about bits of research I needed. And then he said, oh, ooh, I have to play you this song. And I'm filming, and you can see it. I'm moving, it's a very bad shot. And he's um, embarrassing for a director. And he's singing, sings, starts to sing along. And there's such feeling. And he says it one time, he, he, he says, you know, the, the, the lyrics are something like, you know, the, there's, there's storm clouds all around. And he goes, that's me, that's me, there's storm clouds all and he's relating so strongly to the song, but the fact that, yeah, I was there to film it, the fact that he heard that song, the fact that neither has realised when he's singing it, oh, that's the perfect summation of what this film's about. I mean, and it was only quite late into the edit. We thought, oh, let's find something to put on the end of the real Muhammad. And I went through what I had and it's like, oh. Wow. Oh, I love stuff like that. <laughs> Amazing. From when I would chat to you before, it was like, oh, I've got to go and watch The Big Lebowski again when I heard that, you know, because it's like it's one of those films that, you know, I haven't watched in a long time. And Carter Burwell's score in that is just it's so perfect in the way that it kind of weaves with all these other tracks and stuff as well. And, and I love that. And he, he can recite it. Is that right? He knows it like. He can recite it. He, 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 he claims to know every word by heart. I have tested him on a couple of scenes. I love it. Amazing. <laughs> He does. It. It's so it's so unex, it's so it's so unexpected. But you know, he also knows that he knows the lyrics to all sorts of you know obscure and to my ear not particularly good country and western rock <laughs> crossover songs and I like Christian rock that they would play. And 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 it's interesting because he would take something from this and and from these songs and kind of you know he, he's never been to America, but he's got this very. <laughs> this very odd idea must be of America. He sent me recently, actually, you know, he's got a son by an American woman who is, uh, who's his wife. Mm-hmm. And she, she was a lawyer. She went to visit him when he was back in Mauritania, actually. And, you know, they got together and they got married. They had a kid. Uh, but he's not really allowed to leave Mauritania. He can't leave Mauritania. But, the, but, but his wife and child live in, in, in Germany and come down to visit him. They can he showed me this picture of his son who went, went to America for the first time. And his son is sitting in a McDonald's having a happy meal. Look, you know, he's sort of 18 months old with this big, you know, and this grin and the McDonald's. And he sent it to me and thought it was the funniest thing. They said that, you know, here, here his progeny is there doing this American thing you can do, eating a McDonald's. Wow. Was it an easy film to work out how it would sound in terms of, you know, kind of score and things? You worked with Tom Hodge on this, didn't you? Yes, it was actually really hard to figure out how it would sound. And we went through various, or I went through various different kind of iterations and different composers worked on it and I could never quite get it right. And it's one of those funny things, music, isn't it? Because, you know, you can't talk about it very much. You you, you can say, oh, this bit of music is sort of the right kind of feel, but I don't want you to copy it, but can you do that? And that's about as good as you can do. And... We could. We, we, it took us a long time to find Tom to find somebody who could get the tone. And I think what he what he brought to it was he's. This is the first. Or maybe it's the second movie. So he did a small film in Germany, and he's done. Uh, uh, he did an incredible score, which was the first thing I'd heard of his, for a BBC documentary series called The Rise of the Nazis, and he won the Ivan Novello Award for the score of the year for that.
and it is it's extraordinary it's an extraordinary rich soundtrack and and mm. the, the, there's something about his frame of reference which is kind of both modernist uh electronic kind of classical music and also an East European or a Germanic kind of love of the bigger symphonic sound. And the combination of those two things is really interesting and, and unique. And there's something about that that really just worked for, that worked for the movie that the other things that I tried hadn't worked. And it, you know, it's, it's, um, these things are mysteries, you know, It's a physical, emotional thing, isn't it? Reaction to it. Yeah, and I think also with a film like this, you, I, the last thing you want is a score which is leading you emotionally, but you need, but you want to support the emotion, and that's a hard line to find. You know, you don't want this to be sentimental. You you want it to be tough where it, where it has to be tough. Yeah. And to find a composer who could who could thread that needle and do those both of those things is really, 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 really tough. So. He's he's got a lot of chops. He's he's great. <laughs> Hopefully, we'll work together again. I mean, I don't know that much about him, but I, I kind of went and, and listened to some of his stuff. And he's, he's, he seems like a real maverick as well in terms of his approach to things and also his, um, you know, his collaborations as well is, is kind of, he, he, he seems like a real collaborator from the work that he's already done, which is kind Absolutely. of... Absolutely. Yeah, no, he is. He's, he's, he, he's worked with all sorts of people in Germany and, and here. And he sort of skated on, the, in, you know, in that sort of, uh, this sort of strange fringe of, of kind of classical meets uh, electronica, mm. which I'm sure doesn't have a huge audience, but but um, it's got a, it's, it's a unique feel, and and you know he's he's able to bring emotion to electronica, which not everyone can. Yeah, he's got a really fine ear for a melody, and there's some, a couple of really lovely melodies in yeah. in in this in this film, and I always think you know, especially something that's a a, a, a kind of epic story of somebody's life over a long period that you know using thematics is so much fun seeing how things develop thematically through what you can say about you know how they're changing in inside how the characters are changing inside through a, a, a musical theme develops or or collapses and and and, and erodes sometimes almost because the I, I can absolutely see how trying to sort of pin down a score for the film because there's there's quite different elements to the story you know in terms of as we go through it we start obviously you know it, it, in Mauritania with 
Mahamadou in that kind of environment. And then, you know, we're kind of, we're taking on this journey with him as he's kind of incarcerated. But then that whole scene and section of the, the torturing is, is just an, it's an extraordinary piece of filmmaking in terms of how physical affects you when you watch it you know it's mm. it's it's, mm. it's terrifying you've i think you've done such an amazing job with that glad you like to be terrified i love the terror bit <laughs> but you you know you like you like to feel with a film you like to feel the journey and you kind of you feel his frustration and then you feel his then you feel his terror through this well i think also because that sequence you know that it's a it's a it's quite a talky film because it's a legal drama, I guess, in some one way. And there's a lot of people sitting in rooms talking rather good dialogue, but it's, it's sort of, and then you get this sort of 15 minute sequence, which is pretty much purely visual and sonic. And you get to express yourself in a different way as a filmmaker and the composer gets to express himself in a, in a, in a different way. Yeah. And also in that, in that, that kind of sequence, that what is music and what is sound effects becomes so kind of blurred and the two have to work together. And that's, you know, I've worked a lot with um, a sound designer called Glenn Fremantle as a company called um, Sound24 at Pinewood. Mm. He did this. He's done many, many brilliant films, Gravity being probably the most famous, a lot of Danny Boyle's films. And he has this instinctive kind of understanding of, um, when he hears the score, okay, that that is doing this, and I have this other area to inhabit. Yeah, and uh, that's that's you know, and they they of course the sound team love that sort of sequence when it really does become about them, it becomes about the sort of the cinematic element of it. Of course, that's slightly makes it even sadder when you can't show it in a cinema. But um, <laughs> I have to have to forget about that. <laughs> I think, I, I, but you know what was really kind of nice though about with that in mind about the um, that short window was that. I went to an Everyman cinema. I love the Everyman chain. I think they're brilliant. They do some great stuff. And um, and really what what they were doing was was which was brilliant was they were it's that thing where it's almost allowing us to celebrate films that not we've forgotten about but that we really enjoyed and that we maybe didn't get the chance to see the cinema. So I almost kind of think and I hope that a lot of the cinemas when we get to that point will will kind of look back on this time and allow those films to have an opportunity to be seen in a cinema. That would be that would be amazing, wouldn't it? Because I think that's I think that's you know it's those moments in films which are the non-verbal moments. You know, TV is a very verbal medium, but cinema, you know, can be verbal and cannot be. And 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 the moments where I, which you really or I really remember from a film, are always that that visual with a, a, an amazing bit of score, amazing melody, or amazing sound effect. It's that that imprints itself on you. It, it's not generally the the, the great line of dialogue. Going back to that scene, though, the kind of well, that that kind of s- selection, that whole area of the film with the the torture, you know, and he's this is him recollecting to his lawyer, um, played by Judy Foster, and, and writing down what he's been he's been through, and the idea that he had to revisit that in that way and 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 dictate to himself almost that experience and relive it as well. It's just it's it's kind of unfathomable, really. Well, he also, you know, he, Mohamedou, the real Mohamedou, he made his first trip outside of Guantanamo and Mauritania was to come to South Africa when we were filming. And the, the week he came, first of all, he's like a kid in a candy store just being in Cape Town, which is a lovely, beautiful place and amazing mm. restaurants and, and, you know, beautiful landscape. And, and if you've just been in Guantanamo in a cell and then in the desert in Mauritania, you know, it's just extraordinary. So he was—he he just loved it. It was a great holiday for him, and it was—it was so much fun seeing him enjoy himself. But he also was coming to the set, and when we were filming the Guantanamo scenes, and he found that really difficult. And on the first day, he came and he lasted like half an hour. He said, "I have to go." And I said to him later, "Are you, are you okay?" And and he said, "Well, it just brings it—it it brings it back." And and, yeah. and I had seen when I talked to him about the worst experiences, the worst memories before that it really you know the trauma is just beneath the surface you know and it, and it, mm. would, it, would, it would come out and it, he would change as a person physically he would change in front of you and he would often have to leave and go and lie down for a bit or not he just wouldn't want to be with anyone for a while he still these days you know he, he still keeps the hours that he had in when he was in prison because so long in prison and so long in solitary confinement that seeing another person other than guards that, you know, every day he likes to, at seven o'clock, do lock up in a way. He goes into his room and he's there and he's quiet. Oh, wow. And then he gets up 
you know, five in the morning and, and starts again. So, you know, you reminded often, you know, though he's so articulate, charming, funny, you know, it doesn't take long to be reminded of how affected he was by all of this and how it doesn't go away in an instant. Um, Tahara's performance um, is, is brilliant in this. He's fantastic. Isn't oh, he? my God, he's so great. So subtle, you know, just sort of facial expressions and, you know, like you were talking earlier about how sometimes words, you don't need words to, to get something across sometimes. And You can feel the whole history of what's happened to the character because we obviously meet him, we meet the character towards the end of his journey in a way, but we don't know what his journey has been. But he, Tahar manages to make you see or sense what has happened to him, where he's been, what psychological journey he's been on over the last mm. few years. It's it, it, it sort of made real. And one of the incredible things about making the film was that Tahar was meant to do all of his stuff in order so that he could, you know, yeah. much easier for an actor, obviously, to do that. But the, 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 the day before he was due to shoot his first scene, was, which was with Jodie, Jodie got really ill and couldn't come and we had to reschedule things. We had to do on the very first day of Tahar's, we had to do his last scene, which was well, pretty much his last scene, when he's giving a speech to the court at the end. And I was so annoyed about this, of course, because but there was nothing we could do about it. So we had to do this scene. And Tahar delivered this, this scene with such, which is right at the very end of his whole journey, everything he's been through. He delivered it with such nuance and such kind of emotion, withheld, withheld emotion, that you know, myself and the DP Alvin Cookler and I were we were you know practically in tears after his first couple of takes. You know, it was so so incredibly raw and touching. And I think also maybe some of his nerves about oh my god, it's my first day played into the sort of the nerves he has giving this speech. You know, it's his first. It's the first time he's been in court. He's able to actually tell his story to, in, in a legal context, and and um, so he's the nerves were very very uh, uh, appropriate. I bloomin' love watching Jodie Foster on screen as well. I just wish she would do yeah. more. Yes, I know. I, 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 I mean, I felt so incredibly excited. You can't believe when she said yes to this. We sent her the script thinking it's one of those, you know, we'll send it to Jerry Foster first. She'll say no in a <laughs> week. And then we'll go to somebody else, you know, who's a realistic option. So, you know, because she's so perfect for it. We always knew that she was perfect because she has that Laser sharp intelligence. She's an incredibly well educated, bright person, and she's. But she's also got this kind of steely quality to her, and slightly sort of slightly kind of brittle, steely thing going on. And then beneath that, you feel all of this vulnerability, all of it, a kind of slightly broken kind of individual. And that's if you look at Clarice Starling, of course, mm. in, in in Silence of the Lambs. That's what you feel. And and I think Jody read the script and thought, oh, this is. This is part of me. I can do this. I know who this character is. Could almost be Clarice, like aged, couldn't it? Uh, it could be. You're the first person to say that, but I think that's I, that's what I feel. I feel like it's actually it's the sort of extension of the same yeah. the same character. There's the same hurt inside her. The same, you know, desire not to open yourself up to any more hurt, to, to be vulnerable to anyone until you appear abrasive on the outside. And I, and I, and I, and, I, and I think that's central to who. Jodie's character is. I mean, I was also, Jodie is the only actor I've ever worked with who's encouraged me to take out loads of her lines and her scenes because she kept, <laughs> you know, I don't need that. The audience, yeah. are, the way I'm going to do this, the audience are going to know who this person is. They don't, I don't need this backstory. I don't, you know, so the little bits of sort of backstory or the other stuff you learn about her, just the tiny little things. Yeah. Somehow or other, you watch the movie and you, you know who this person is. That I guess is a great actor, a great screen actor. That you, you know, you, you don't need all that stuff about, you know, my dog died when I was six years old, and I decided to be <laughs> a vet. Yeah. You don't need all yeah. of that. <laughs> One thing I wanted to ask before we run out of time was, um, just on a, on a kind of career thing, is whether when you're thinking about the music for a film, if it's a, is it a different approach thinking about a feature film to thinking about a documentary and how you how it's scored. Or do you have the same conversations? I think I have the same conversation. I think with documentaries, it's, you know, music can either be really big and at the front or it has to sit beneath, you know, very much beneath real people talking. And that's very hard to score. It's very hard to, to sort of put much at all underneath. I find underneath, you know, people in a real verite scene or in talking heads or whatever. And, but then when you go to the musical scenes, you can play them, boom, and it really is just about 
about the music. But you know, one of the inspirations for for doing this film was a musical one because I actually uh, um, I became friendly a few years ago with Baba Mal, the great Senegalese singer writer, and I went with him and made a little documentary in his hometown where he has a little festival every year for West African musicians. Oh, wow. And his hometown is called Podor and it's on the other side of the, it's on the river Senegal, which separates Mauritania from Senegal. And I met some Mauritanians and it turned out that Mohamedou's birthplace was about three miles from where I was, where I actually went several times. <laughs> and, and, I started to listen with Baba Mal to Mauritanian music, and he was the one who suggested the band who play at the beginning and the wedding. That's a, that's a yeah. friend, friends of his, um, Mauritania, Nora, Mint, Simali. And originally, actually, I was Baba and I talked about him doing some of the score. And, but when I started playing around with using more sort of, you know, ethnic African kind of things in the body of the film, it didn't feel right. It felt like we wanted that at the beginning and the end. So we've got Mauritanian music at the beginning of the movie and at the end of the movie when he's in Mauritania and when he returns. And the rest of it is, you know, I guess more neutral um, score. It felt somehow too, it felt too, um, felt like it was begging you in the wrong way somehow, having to constantly be reminded of, it, of, his, of his ethnicity. It maybe made it less, made it less universal. The music and the, that that whole opening kind of sequence, you know, setting up his, you know, his family and and how how mm. loved they all are and and mm. how they are with each other, mm. um, is is beautiful. That music's amazing in that. It's so incredible. It is incredible. That's traditional. That's traditional Mauritanian music. You should get some. It's it's look yeah. up look up Nura's music on, on on YouTube. There's some really there's some really lovely tracks there. It's next to Mali, and it's got that Mali kind of blues, African desert blues guitar thing on. But they also use a lute kind of thing. It looks like a lute, you know, multi-string, sort of looks like a sitar or a lute. It's got, the, it's got these sort of flourishes. So you've got electric guitar, often quite driving electric guitar, with a kind of a, a kind of uh, lutey, kind of delicate sort of thing. It's an instrument, actually, that Nura plays. It's, 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 it's only allowed to be played by women. In their culture, men cannot play this instrument. They're not allowed to. I love and, that. Uh, and then the, the 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 melodies are these kind of extraordinary Arabic, African kind of you know big powerful voices yeah. singing. It's it's it's, it's really kind of. Um, an interesting, undiscovered world music genre. But it's it's that combination, isn't it, of the instrumentation, but also the voice and how the voice is used with and the power that that gives it and the richness it gives it and the personality that it gives it as well, I think. It's just yes, absolutely. But also they used to, you know, they don't, they don't have that big a recording industry, so it's all about live. And so everybody's, you know, and Nora turned up. I said, do you have microphones of your own? He said, yeah, she turned up with the, like a, a radio mic, which the sound man said to me, cost $25. And this was her main microphone that she used for all of her gigs that she did in Mauritania. But, but the power of her voice was such that, you know, it doesn't matter. It, come, it, it, it comes through. Yeah. I need to go and have a look at Return to Poder. I've not watched that yet. Look forward to that. Um, yeah. No, it's not actually been released. Is it not? No, but funnily enough, I'm, I'm, I've just sent it to somebody at the BBC hoping that yeah. they might put it on BBC4. There was a, there was a little contractual issue. 
It didn't yeah, okay. actually. It, it, it played at one festival a couple of years ago, and then it's sort of been been. But it's yeah, it's it's a it's a nice little thing. It takes you certainly takes you to a different place. Yeah, amazing. That's what we need right now. Transportative, isn't it? Just Transportative like, oh, experiences yeah. for sure. And um, listen, it's so great to chat to you. I'm excited to see what's next as well, which I know you've just finished. Well, you've just finished editing, but I imagine you've got like three other things on the go or in the pipeline as well. At the I've minute. got a few other things on the go, but really I just want to lie down now. <laughs> go and lie down Kevin it's lovely to chat to you Um, thanks so much for your time yeah take care I hope to see you in person soon thanks so much thanks very very much see you soon take care lovely bye to the Mauritanian, that's The Real Charlie Sheen by Tom Hodge, concluding the first part of soundtracking with the wonderful Kevin MacDonald. Next, an interview I did with Chloe Zhao, which isn't really about music at all, but rather a more general conversation about her wonderful film Nomadland. But given its success at last week's BAFTAs, at which she won Best Director and at Best Film, we wanted to share it with you anyway. I hope you don't mind. Now, before we hear Chloe, here's the Nomadland mix of Drifting Away I Go... It's been many years since I started out for that goal Finding bits and pieces all worth their reach I'll carry it on When summer in the line I followed my eyes and went alone Ended up here with fear cold will grip and the stone Drifting away Hi Chloe, um congratulations on, on the film. It's beautiful. I guess I'd be really interested to find out the journey that the you know where you started out in terms of the story that you set out to tell and if the story you ended up telling was the same thing. I think I'm very blessed in the in the sense that yes, it, it is. You know, we set out to tell uh one woman's journey, um, but wanting her journey to take us through different landscapes and and meeting interesting people. Um and um in the end, you know, you take away something that that means means something to the audience and to her, and and uh, we ended up with exactly that. Hopefully, with regards to Jessica's novel, what was the connection you had? What was the emotional connection you had with with that book? It's just really colorful, interesting characters, and also a, a rich world that she she presented to us through her year long research. How did the project come to you? Uh, uh, Frances McDorman contacted me with her uh, producing partner, Peter Spears. They optioned mm-hmm. the book and they came to me with it. And what did they ask? What did they say? They said, do you want to uh, do, <laughs> do, do this? Uh, <laughs> was it yes straight away or what, you know, what was, yeah. Yes. I mean, it was, I, I read the book and then I, I met with a friend and, and Peter. Yeah, it was a yes right away. And then in terms of writing your Nomadland, what did you draw inspiration from aside from the book? A, a big part is uh, the creation of first character is friend, who friend is in real life. Uh, it's a big inspiration for me and, and how she lives her, her own life. And then also just the, the, the time I've spent on the road. Uh, the, the landscapes of the American West draw a lot of inspiration from that as well. Because the, the kind of the landscape is very much 
it's very much a character within the film you know in terms of it plays such a an important part and and from the films that you've done in the past you have it feels that you have such a connection with nature and with the landscape and how important they are to help and tell a story would you agree yes I would. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? But what do you? What is it that you find in in yeah. landscapes that 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 they? What do they offer you? What do they give you as a creative and as a filmmaker? What do they? Yeah, I think it, it comes from the the sort of the the master that had inspired me to make films. You know, I come from the school of. Terence Malick School of Filmmaking, I always make that joke. And, and also Wong Kar Wai is being a huge inspiration for me, even though he makes films in the city, the way he, the environment, like Happy Together was the first film that I saw that made me want to make films. That the, the environment around these two characters, the city is very much of, of their inner lives. And, and it's the same with Terry's films. Uh, the landscape makes his characters feel like they're, they're part of something bigger. Um, mm-hmm. So anything we experience through them, you feel like we're all interconnected through this, this landscape, this nature that's around us. When you kind of set out with this film, in terms of how you would tell the story, the actual existence of these people, how important was that for, for you to embrace that and, and kind of almost submerge yourself within their world to be able to find the truth in your story? I think these characters were the, probably the reason why uh, Fran and Peter first wanted to option the book. And it's the reason why I signed on to the project as well. So for us, the very the very first conversation is now yes or no, like you said, is more <laughs> how, how, you know, yeah. how do we how do we incorporate these characters into this film and at the same time allow Fern's journey to 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 take us through a, a movie, take the audience through a movie. And we, we're we uh, pragmatic in the sense that to shine, shine lights on the lives of these people and actually having them in the film, uh, in the industry we're in, the world we're in, to, to have the audience attention, you know, having a performance like Friends would really anchor that. That's just the, the, the reality. And, and so how do we make her journey not necessarily overtake the colors and the brightness of the other characters, but but exist, coexist harmoniously. And that's the challenge. So how did you do it? <laughs> it's, a, it's one day at a time, you know, all the way from writing to being there and to editing. Um, I think it's, it's a constant collaboration with everyone and trying to find that balance. Was it a case of or physically, you know, the production, getting into vehicles and hitting the road? Because you did that over is it five states in five months or something you covered in terms of, you know, of being out there on the road and, and creating this, this wonderful film. You know what, I have to say that I, I do think the limitations that we set ourselves, because when you make a road movie, it's a bit like anything could happen. Any, you can do whatever you want. And having a bigger budget than the films that I've done in the past, also allowed me to say, oh, now I get to get a production designer. I get to do, I, I could build it inside of the van on a stage, you know, and that will allow me many more choices as a director and my DP as well to do interesting shots in the van. But we kind of just went at the beginning, no, let's, let's set some rules, right? Like we're not going to sh- shoot things that aren't real. We're not going to, um, uh, we're going to sh- shoot mostly magic hours. We're going to travel to these places for real at the right time of the year. So there's, there's a lot of limitation we set for ourselves. So as a result, the, the movement of the camera inside of that, it, it feels real. You feel like you're entering these people's world because you know, you can't really move any other way in that space. So there's that authenticity to it. And I think we try to do that in every aspect of the production, including traveling to all these places. I guess the pre-production was, uh, or was it a hugely important factor in terms of knowing where you needed to be at what time for, you know, weather conditions, if nothing else? If you, you know, the low desert of of Arizona, you you can't really go uh, unless it's, cool enough so you gotta go there in the winter and good luck doing that in South Dakota in the winter so so you know knowing that those limitations again that allow us to plan our shoot really there's only one way to do it you know you gotta start here and end there and that's how most nomads live as well they have sort of a weather map 
because there's no air conditioning. You know, you, you can't, you have to follow what nature gives you. And that is another limitation that benefited our production. I was watching um, some interviews that you um, guys did, and it's kind of bonkers to think that at one point, Frances wasn't going to, she wasn't going to be in it. She wasn't going to be fun. Is that true? It is a very early conversation at the very <laughs> beginning saying like, should, should there be, just, you know, should it just be all non-actors like the writer? And I think just the ageism that's so um, poisonous in our industry and in our society um, as we see today. And it, it's just the reality is I, I felt very strongly I needed I need a friend, I need a fur. And I need someone to be able to be the listener that is iconic enough that the audience go, okay, if, if that lady can sit there with that expression on her face, I maybe I will stop for a second and listen to Swanky's story as well and Linda Mason. And that's something Frances McDormand can do is that without much words or action, she can just sit there and she command that kind of attention much needed for this film. You just can't take your eyes off her in this film. It's you feel like you're in that van with her. You know, yeah. you can feel the cold. You can, mm-hmm. you want to, you know, pat her back when she's got that cough. And it's just, it's extraordinary the way that you're immediately pulled into her, just her space. And it's so small. That space is so small, mm-hmm. but you're pulled so immediately into it. How did you write all these characters? Because, like you say, you know, swanky what a woman and just oh and and Linda May and you know all these characters and stuff so how did that work in terms of what you wrote versus just being there in that moment and actuality and reality being what you captured we we always go in with some kind of preparation which allow us to be spontaneous and spending time with them, listening to their stories. You know, Swanky, one of the first things she showed me was that video that you saw in the movie, it's the swallows that she filmed herself. Um, and then her talking about what that, the story of the swallows and, you know, me with a little notebook, go, oh yeah, well, that's definitely going to be in the movie. And then the question, and then for, for my, my writing part is more um, the, the skeleton, the, the, the structure of it. So how can I bring that story in naturally? Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the day, there's also a bit of onset writing, rewriting. You know, if she come up with something new, I go, okay, well, then, then, then friend, we got to say this. And, and so there's a there's spontaneous thing happened there. And then in the edit, there's also another layer of seeing how that those things can fit through the editing language of editing as well. So it, it's a it's a continuous effort. Do you think that it was it could only have worked in the way in the powerful way that it has because you crossed all those roles? You know, in terms of you you wrote it, you produced it, you directed it, you edited it. In terms of you were there and you felt that you know I, I think that for me in terms of watching it it that's why you feel like you're there and you're part of it because you were and because you're editing it and you're putting it together in such a truthful and honest way. I like that. I like to take credit on all of that. It's nice. <laughs> but you can have that, Chloe. Yeah, you can have I, that. <laughs> I, I, I mean, you can do this with other people as well. I believe great films that give that feeling has achieved with, with you know, working with an editor and working with a writer. Um, in our case, it's just something that we we just decided to do it, you know, because we knew there's a very little time in terms if we otherwise we gotta wait for another year because you gotta hit all these seasons. And we don't know where all of these nomads are gonna be. Like there's a such a most films I've made so far has that urgency. If I don't do it now. Like you know, and the writer, I don't know Brady is going to be healed, uh, and he's a different will be a different person. So there's a yeah. lot of that, and then to to just jump in, sometimes it is easier to just do it yourself. I don't know what was your expectation of Frances with this role, and and what she delivered, you know, in terms of she brought this to you, she saw that you, you know, in the work that you've done in the past. I think she said she saw the writer at at, at Toronto and. And she knew that this was a story that you could tell. But in terms of you with her, in terms of what your expectation was of her with what she'd bring with Fern, what was the reality of that? Well, you know, all, all my expectations and, and some, you know, I, I, I think, you know, I think a part of it is also like, are, are you able to 
be there, be with these people, and 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 also like have to restrain everything you're so good at. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes those situations will make her have to actively go against everything that she built her careers on. And and kind you have the capacity to do that for four or five months. You know, it can't be easy. I can't imagine. Uh, but she did it, and and she did it, and she also brought a, a, a sense of humor and a sense of um, um, a personality to a firm that I didn't even completely, I wanted it, but I didn't know if it's going to work, but but she brought out of that as well, uh, on top of being a docent, we've been using that word for the other characters. Yeah. So yeah, um, all my expectations and some. I love the kind of almost childlike quality yeah. that Fern has. You know, even when she's walking through the, the, the kind of Amazon plant and the way she kind of like, you know, she's being cheeky and she kind of sort of taps someone or she, you know, it's just, it's, it's kind of wonderful. And you, she just constantly surprises you almost as a person and you kind of, yeah, you're, you root for her from the start kind of thing. And you almost kind of feel like, you know, you do know, you don't know what choice she's going to make. And that's so clever in the way that you've managed to do that. You know, you kind of, you kept guessing. It would attract me to a friend a lot, like how she is in real life. I can't watch her getting groceries, which I have seen many times. <laughs> I can't watch her getting groceries, just watch that for two hours. It's just, there is a, you know, I, I compare her to Buster Keaton a lot. I always say there's a, that quality. You don't have to say much, just her body language, the way she looked over at you. It, it just, yeah, isn't so alive. And that I think is important for the character because this subject matter is heavy and you know there's a tendency to always go to a sort of a heavy and melancholy place. And she kind of snap us out of it by her, you know, her own essence. It's I love them you talking about there's kind of two different types of people. There's kind of true nomads and kind of forced nomads. Well, yeah, can you explain what you mean by that? Because it's a really interesting kind of idea and it's almost kind of the journey she's on to work out which one she is, really. People, I mean, some people belong to the road, you know, um, and they belong to a lifestyle that doesn't really, um, they're a river than a lake, you know. Um, Some people are like that. They're they're nomadic tribes instead of rice farmers, you know, that, that, that's just different people, you know, mm-hmm. and I think, and then there's others who, who needs to be on the road because the mainstream society had tossed them aside. So they have to figure out another way to live and until they can come back to a level of comfort again. And I think for, I, I like to think, and I think Fran probably agree, uh, we wanted to create a character who is a nomad at, at heart. And, uh, and there's nothing romantic about it, you know, and, and most of her life, she's lived one way and, and she lived happily. And then when, when she lost everything, it, it, might be a tra- it might just be a tragedy, but she, she had a chance in a year to rediscover herself, to get to know herself more. Uh, a side of her she, didn't, she probably has forgotten since her young, young years. And then she decided to choose the road uh, for the next how many years that she's on this planet. And, and I think it doesn't mean it's easy. It's not going to be easy, um, but that's where her heart belongs. What was the biggest challenge for you whilst you were shooting the film? Just <laughs> try to keep up, you know. <laughs> Recently, someone sent me a video of uh, that I talk actually of us pulling out of a parking lot as a caravan. <laughs> And I just remember thinking, because you, you get out from another motel, another gas station, and, and you just get in the van and you go and you leave behind all these people that you become so connected to. And you do this every week and, and it's uh, emotionally exhausting. Yeah, I, I, I love that that was almost the, you know, the kind of the, the emotional baggage that you have to leave behind. And you feel that when these when these vans are all pulling out of these you know these parks as people and stuff and I guess as well there was a there had to be a sense of respect for for these people and and their life and their world as well and and that might you know was that kind of delicate thing to kind of navigate as well yeah we wanted to capture the you know to me it's it's always um 
people can take away whatever they want to take away from the film if we present if we try to set a mirror um and they just uh it's still a mirror you know necessarily to, but it's, it's a version of of their lives and and then and then um, and i feel like if we be truthful then we will capture both the hardship but also the strength and the joy um and not editing it too much uh, in what we want to say about this subject matter, uh, but let a human being guide us, then there is going to be a diversity of tone and feelings and not just one stereotypical portrayal, hopefully. Yeah, and that's a really brilliant thing about the film, I think, as well. You talk about the idea of, of, uh, and is, is this what you hope people will take away from it, is the fact that it turns a mirror? I hope people can, I always do feel that way with my other films as well with non-professional actors. I, I hope that they don't walk away thinking these people are a poster child for issue. I hope that they go, oh, they also feel lost and then they also get excited at the twilight of their lives about going to kayak. You know, they 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 want to build a home and they and it's, it's these human and they have to go poop in a bucket. You know, they had to learn how to do that. You know, <laughs> and and friendship. <laughs> and I, was, I, I yeah. love. You know, like these are these are things that unite us, and then the things that are dividing us, and the the political uh, message or the social stuff. Uh, that stuff is on the peripheral. It's there just by pointing the camera already. Yeah, so it's very important that we don't hammer that even more. How fine is the line between? Francis and Fern. I think you have to ask her. I, 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 <laughs> I think I can't tell. I mean, for me, it's very hard because I stare at her. You know, especially in the edit. Like I, and then I see Fran. I, I don't even know who I know anymore. Like, is it Fern or is it Fran? Um, there's definitely differences. You know, obviously she's yeah. portraying a character, but I like to selfishly think there's a lot in common. Well, I like the notion that she kind of left home at 17, you know, and kind of went on this journey as a woman. And, you know, and I love the idea of her talking about, you know, building on some of the some of her previous characters and those performances to give to Fern in a way. Well, she also talked about the what if game, you know, what if she didn't become an actress? What if, you know, uh, she could, we always say she could end up in Empire and this could be her life. I love that. I felt so envious of her. I did. I, I kind of, I really did. I love the kind of, I think there's such a positivity to take away from, from the film in terms of the human spirit. Um, I think the strength that you put on that is just, yeah, it's absolutely beautiful. Um, do you mind if we talk a little bit about the, the music in the film as well? Because, uh, because the film is so kind of seeded in, you know, in, in the world around us and kind of interfering with that in a way by, by bringing in score and things like that. Was that a really delicate thing to try and navigate and work out how you would do it? Um, the, you know, the filmmakers that I really love that I mentioned earlier have always worked with pre-existing scores before uh, yeah. classical music or popular music. So I, I wanted to go that direction. And, and then I wanted to, I, I, did, I didn't want music to come in upset the, the delicate balance we're trying to, to have. So I literally Googled beautiful classical music inspired by nature. Amazing. <laughs> I'm not kidding. And then I saw a YouTube video of uh, Ludwig's um, uh, allergy for the Arctic. He basically played the piano on a floating platform in the Arctic Sea while the, the mountains of ice were collapsing behind him. And he's just playing these simple piano. I'm like, oh my goodness. And, and, and then I discovered his Seven Days Walking album, which he composed walking seven days in the Alps. And you almost feel like what he's experiencing and when Fern walks through the Badlands, even though they're so different as individuals and they're in two different parts of the world, they share the commonality of their connection with the nature while share. And that's why his music was a no brainer for me.
think this story could have been told in any other part of the world or did it have to be you know set in America and set in that particular part I think the the themes of the story uh the spirit of story for sure any part of the world world any walk of life when you lose something when you lose everything that defines who you are can you find yourself again you know that story kind of the American road itself and certain landscapes and, and certain people and, and, and specific culture that you encounter, um, the, the pioneer uh, c- culture of, of the American West, that there's also something quite central American about it, which I also love. Um, it's a combination of both. I want to know where she is now. <laughs> Her? Yeah. Probably somewhere, I don't know, somewhere in Montana. <laughs> She's probably like, too much is happening. I'm going to go away somewhere in the middle of nowhere. Oh, I miss her. I really miss her. <laughs> she's just, she's made such an impression on me. I really, really miss her. And your film, I think, is is absolutely beautiful. Um, thank you so much for your time, Chloe. It's really great to chat to you about it. Thank you. Thank you. From the soundtrack to Nomadland, that's the Burn the Van Again version of On the Road by the cast. Rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with the fabulous Chloe Zhao and Kevin McDonald. My huge thanks to Chloe and Kevin for taking the time to talk to us. Now, The Mauritanian is available to stream on Amazon Prime. Also, though, if you are aware of a wonderful little film festival, the Bridport Film Festival, which goes by the the tag of From Page to Screen, it's all about adaptations, then I highly recommend that you go online and sign up for some tickets because they've got some great films as part of their online programme this year. Another festival forced to go online. But one of the things that they do have is a screening of the Mauritanian, which I was lucky enough to host a Q&A with Kevin and Mohamedou directly after. And that takes place on the 22nd of April. So if you fancy checking that out, then head to From Page to Screen Festival, Bridport Film Festival to find out details and get some tickets. Also, Nomadland will premiere on Star on Disney Plus in the UK and Ireland on the 30th of April. And it will also be available in cinemas from the 17th of May. Um, And I was very, very lucky that in that, do you remember that little window of opportunity that we had to go to the cinema? It was about two weeks, wasn't it? Nomadland was one of the films I was lucky enough to see. And that is months ago. So I'm definitely going to go back and see it again. Next up. Very excited because we continue our celebration of nominated films and artists with the fabulous Emerald Fennell and Katie Mulligan talking about their BAFTA-winning, Oscar-nominated Promising Young Woman. They are brilliant, the film is brilliant, and I can't wait to share our conversation with you. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. 
Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com slash aware. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts.